welcome to another episode of Khaki Malarkey. Today we have on the lovely Helen Fry. Um, Helen is an expert in Second World War military intelligence, having written a number of books on the topic, including The Walls Have Ears and her most recent one, MI9, which we have the pleasure of talking about today. Helen's also been involved in a number of documentaries, including Secret Service, Spying on Hitler's Army and Race to Victory. Helen is an honorary member of the Association of Jewish Refugees and associate editor for I Spy magazine, as well as being an ambassador for the Museum of Military Intelligence. So definitely a, a very busy woman. How are you, Helen? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you for having me. So first of all, we'll just start with, can you summarise the book in 30 seconds? <laughs> it's a challenge, but I'm sure you can do it. Yeah, so we're speaking about MI9, which was the forgotten secret service of the Second World War, and it ran escape lines, secret escape lines across Europe in lots of daring missions, and it is just an incredible forgotten story. Perfect. I think that was like 22 seconds. <laughs> so Liv's doing like a little leaderboard of the different people. I think we, so far James Holland has had the shortest at 20, 20 seconds. 20, yeah. Um, so we're going to have to see if anyone can do, do better than that. But it, it's a fantastic topic. But I, I kind of feel we should really start with the basics because people generally know about six branches of military intelligence. Obviously everybody knows about MI6 courtesy of Fleming's James Bond. So just kind of explain to people what was MI9? Where does it fit into the other branches of military intelligence? And why was it actually set up? Yeah, so you actually have military intelligence all the way from 1 to 19, and I've written primarily about 9 and 19, and MI9 was established in December 39, and its role was to deal with escape and evasion, or to deal with prisoners of war from an enemy perspective, so um, an intelligence so one wing of it was involved, and I talked about the walls have ears, was bugging the conversations of German prisoners of war for intelligence. But what I've written about now is MI9's wing that was dealing with our airmen and soldiers, getting them back from behind enemy lines and realizing that they are an asset. You can't just leave them in prisoner of war camps that we care about their safety, but they could potentially return to fight again. And I just want to add there really, that if you think about the, well, not just the Battle of Britain, but we had to have air superiority over Nazi Germany and over the Luftwaffe, then we had to particularly get our pilots back. So how exactly do they operate? Because Clearly, they had to work very closely with resistant movements, but that wasn't necessarily an easy task, was it? Ah, oh, that's quite a complicated, loaded question, but an interesting one. So if I can wind back a little bit, because MI9 actually had this whole philosophy and it came from its commander, Brigadier Norman Crockett, of escape mindedness. So everything it did was to try and get airmen and soldiers back, either to evade capture or to escape. So they had to be trained. And that didn't necessarily mean, and quite often didn't necessarily mean linking up with resistance movements. Depends actually on your definition of resistance movements. Because one of the things I highlight in the book is that MI9 had its escape lines, MI6 had its escape lines, SOE, the Special Operations Executive, had its escape lines. And of course, SOE very closely working resistance, are blowing up things behind enemy lines. But my understanding from reading the MI9 history is that it wanted to link up 
and it did link up with local helpers and guides, some of whom may have been in a resistance movement, but not necessarily. And that's, I know that's quite a pedantic distinction, but I do see MI9 largely trying to operate on its own, as did SIS MI6, so that it, well, to, to try and avoid betrayal and uh, compromise. So I hope that kind of makes sense. Yeah, no, I don't think that's pedantic at all. And that's really interesting because I was about to ask, and you just kind of touched on this, aren't they all kind of trying to reinvent each other's wheels? But then you kind of made the point, well, if you are all operating along the same lines, then you're, if one sector has a mole, then, then all of your operations are compromised. Oh, well, there's a lot of rivalry historically, particularly between SOE and MI6. Um, what is interesting is that a figure, Claude Dancy, I love him, he's not mentioned in any of the MI9 reports. He is completely missing from the MI9 files. But Claude Dancy happened to be the deputy head of MI6. And he was appointed head of the escape lines for MI9 and MI6. He hated SOE, by the way. Um, and there are possibilities, and you can read that in the book, that he may have compromised some of those networks to save MI6's network. So it's, it's very controversial, but I think it's worth hearing me out. Not now, you have to read the book. Um, I'm not the only historian that thinks it's possibly the blurring of the lines. But Dancy was given the task of, of overseeing the two escape lines precisely to keep them separate because we don't want them to merge. We don't want anyone, you know, the helpers and guides um, straying into MI6's top secret stuff that they're, whatever they're doing quietly behind enemy lines. So I, I hope that's helpful. It's a very, very important distinction, but we must also remember that there's a lot of rivalry, particularly with SOE. That's not to say that SOE didn't, help occasionally as in the case of Holland and Greece. I think that's so interesting Helen and one thing I kind of wanted to ask was obviously you've got all these individuals who are working for themselves and kind of working between the, the different sections of intelligence but one bit in the book that really struck me was so interesting uh, was the Q gadgets. Now could you tell me a bit more about them? Oh yeah, so this comes from MI9's headquarters. So we're talking about from the other end, we're not talking about from Western, occupied Western Europe or whatever. So from MI9's end, not only did airmen and soldiers have training before they went into action, but MI9 and it's Crockett really again thinking, we need to give them aids to help them escape. And this is where a pretty unorthodox officer, Christopher Clayton Hutton, he was known as Clutty, he kind of thought outside the box and Crockett said to him, look, what we need are escape gadgets, but we need to hide them in ordinary objects, everyday objects, so that the Germans wouldn't find them. The miniature compasses are probably one of the most famous, absolutely extraordinarily tiny, tiny compasses that are no bigger than a button. And one of the things Clutty thought about was to how could you hide those behind uh, a button? on a service uniform. 
and they unscrewed counterintuitively so the Germans never found <laughs> found these miniature compasses, but they could be hidden inside uh, fake walnuts, fake sweets, anything to smuggle them into prisoner of war camps and other items as well. Of course, there were coded messages, coded letters. There were other um, maps, tiny maps that were smuggled in, but ordinary objects like the shaving brush, you know, every personnel, hopefully, as long as they're allowed to keep their shaving kit, would have a shaving brush and hidden inside was a tiny compass, for example. So that was important. And 1.3 million of these miniature compasses were manufactured for MI9 across the war. So it's, that's just the compasses. And there was tons of other stuff, these sort of cue gadgets, which of course were immortalized by Fleming after the war. And we all thought Fleming was brilliant, but actually, he's taken his inspiration and a lot of his ideas from the MI9 files. So did Fleming give away top secret intelligence without realising <laughs> it? Well, I don't think it's so much that. I think it's the fact that, well, particularly with spy novels, I think, the fact and the fiction is so blurred the boundaries. And then he's writing as fiction, so you don't really know if it's true. And I mean, so, some of the gadgets are so, so bonkers that you kind of think it can't be true. And I was surprised when I started working on the MI9 files a few years ago to suddenly start reading references, thinking, I've read this in the James Bond novels. But of course, it's been developed much more in the recent Bond novels for contemporary times. But the ideas come from that unorthodox thinking of MI9 and that was critical to its success to think outside the box. I almost feel that you're about to tell me that there was a plan for some kind of rocket-powered Aston Martin that was going <laughs> to just kind of parachute into POW camps with machine guns blazing or something. But on a serious note, you talked about how they have to get these gadgets into POW yes. camps. Is there a kind of a preparation of the air crews before they even go out on deployment? so that they kind of know some of the little tricks of MI9's trade? Or is that just too dangerous? Because if they become captured and they're interrogated and they start revealing those plans and those ideas, then you start to compromise the whole system. How, do, how does it work? No, you see, MI9 did give substantial training across three to four weeks at one of its secret sites in North London, actually, known as RAF Highgate, masked as a convalescent home for downed airmen, but it wasn't at all. It was a secret training site in escape and evasion and to be alert to gadgets. And when the new gadgets were created, uh, there would be coded messages, for example, sent into the prisoner of war camp, so they knew what to look for. But I think also the prisoners um, it came from the other side as well. So the prisoners came to, to realise, you know, well, OK, if I dip this blanket, and this was one of the things they did, it was fantastic, MI9, they sent blankets into the camp in the parcels in the boxes. And if you dipped it in water with a special solution, up would come a pattern on it in the pattern of a German uniform, so they could just cut around and stitch it, well, I say stitch it together, you know what I mean. But it oh, was wow. as much, so you've got, you've got the cue gadgets from this end, but you've also got the prisoners being taught before they go into action, so not the prisoners, but the personnel, before they become prisoners, being taught things like, if you find yourself in a prisoner of war camp, if it moves, nick it. 
so you find that the prisons are, are i mean in the mi9 files i'm i'm just in stitches and tears reading some of this stuff so for example and i will just give you one example and there are tons and tons of examples but when they were busy digging out of a particular camp they often did it at night I mean, there were other examples, but sometimes they did it at night. Uh, so what do you do if somebody's missing from their bed and the guard comes and peeps into the room and, you know, well, they, they obviously made the body with a pillow, but they actually made the head and the head they made of a pumpkin. And of course, they were allowed leisure activities in the camp, painting and whatever, arts and crafts. And so they painted the face, it looked so realistic, but they stuck hair on it from the, from the barber's shop. Well, I say the barber's shop, the barber's room. So they had real hair on this pumpkin and it looked so realistic that they never got found out. And it's things like that. And if there are workmen in the camp, try and nick their tools. So again, everything that moves is potentially useful in an escape. And I think that's wonderful. It's the whole thinking that MI9 imbues in personnel before they go into action. That is just incredible. I mean, I'm, as I'm listening to you, I'm kind of thinking about scenes from the Great Escape film where yeah. they're just using every single opportunity. There's one that really sticks in my mind right now about a chocolate bar. That's it. And yeah. he, he gives the chocolate bar to the, the guy and there's this whole thing about, are you trying to bribe me? And no, I don't want the chocolate bar. And so he uses it as a kind of a sleight of hand to nick the guy's identity papers so that they can start yeah. working on the forgery. It's just incredible that it's not even just a funny moment in the film. This is how they are thinking day to day. And you say that because people do think, oh, this is a fantastic film. But I've read this kind of stuff almost word for word in the camp history of Colditz, for example, or in Stalag Luft III. Uh, Pat Reed, who was himself an escaper from Colditz, obviously advised on a lot of the TV programmes later. And in a sense, he didn't have to make it up. He just lift this stuff <laughs> from reality. And you mentioned chocolate. One of the things I found funny because they faked these uniforms. And as you know, the great giant of MI9, one of them, um, Airy Neve, just walks out of Colditz dressed as a German officer. Well, one of the other escape attempts where they make a uniform and the German general, for one of our generals, they make his holster out of chocolate. They've got, <laughs> they make a mold. And then from a distance, this looks real. And yeah. it's chocolate. His gun is made out of wood. You know, they start sawing off the... I can't understand how the Germans didn't notice that some of the furniture was getting a bit shorter. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's wonderful stuff. And, and of course, the other thing which is important to mention in this context, it sounds very crazy, but MI9, again, taught personnel before they went into action. Look, if you're busy making this stuff to try and escape, you are keeping mentally sane and healthy in the camp so it was all about keeping them healthy as well that's so interesting because you think how they're using such simple resources stuff that we have mm. around the house now and they've been able to turn it into something that's potentially life-saving yeah it, it seems something when we're talking about this to me i'm imagining it to be so technical and really advanced at the time but really it's not i think that's so interesting Oh no, they do things like tie string to tin cans and they manage to rig up 
quite extraordinary a primitive air conditioning so i often thought to myself they're 100 foot down they, they tunneled 300 foot at one point before they got you know so this is great distances and tiny tiny spaces and i think how could they breathe down there well they actually created this sort of uh, very primitive air conditioning i mean i wouldn't even know where to start but again, you know, they're working all this out. And then one of the other famous things is the glider, the wooden glider at Colditz, which they made from the boxes. It was never used in the end, but they, the boxes where the stuff comes into the camp, they're sort of gifts and leisure activities and items. They're using absolutely everything. And I think somebody recently did a program where they tried to show whether the glider, they replicated it exactly. And they realized that it actually would have flown if they needed it but of course the americans came and liberated the camp <laughs> but wonderful stuff and there's something i really want to talk about and i think you touched about on um, some of the ominous places of mi9 earlier on and one place i wonder if you can tell us a bit much about without going too much detail obviously for the book but is room 900 yes this will be very interesting and i think i would urge people to to read the book for these brown well they are groundbreaking discoveries that i wasn't expecting room 900 very briefly was a top secret section of mi9 and it was run by jimmy langley that other great giant of mi9 and also an escaper and airy neve and they were involved in intelligence gathering so what i discovered was that not only were personnel being interrogated if they made it back they call it interrogation but like a debriefing so the escape reports survive in the national archives and they're all very very different you think they might be quite similar they're all very different but room 900 is not only ensuring that airmen and soldiers are debriefed when they get back they are actually collecting intelligence on the lines and involved in counter espionage what we traditionally think of as being the domain of mi6 and for me that was incredible and there's a very famous figure who pops up in room 900 and i'm not going to give it away but his photo is in the book <laughs> and i think you'll think you know your readers will think oh my goodness what's he doing in the book everyone needs to get this book i have to ask when these men come back and they've managed to get all the way from wherever they've been interred in in Germany. And they they achieve what sort of almost seems impossible in terms of getting across occupied Europe, in effect, getting across through whichever line of um, whichever route they they've succeeded in mm. connecting to. Is there a slight fear that these men might have been turned? And so is part of the debrief process about making sure that they're not now kind of working for the germans in some sense yeah well first of all i would say um none of the escapes and that's clear from the escape reports was easy it was and it was always always fraught with danger and yes you're absolutely right in fact to give just one very brief example a belgian uh, girl who founded is one of the key founders of the comet line which ran from brussels all the way through paris down to the pyrenees when she actually made it into spain and turned up at the british embassy in bilbao they basically thought she was a german agent she said well look i've got a couple of airmen two or three airmen with me that i've rescued parcels as they were known that was always uppermost in mi9's mind and it could also be the helpers that could be masking 
as real helpers but yes they had to ensure that the no one had been turned and and you can read as you know about harold cole who was working for mi9 absolutely dreadful man who was turned by the abfair and still carried on bringing but he brought fake airmen and compromised the line with devastating consequences i mean they people lost their lives they were shot or sent to concentration camps so this was serious and it was by no means i think we tend to think from the films the great escape and, and those kind of films and, and the wooden horse that it was all easy it absolutely wasn't easy and some of course made several attempts before they got back so uh, whilst we're talking about these escape lines tell us a little bit about how they operate because they can't have been simple things to put together to organize this kind of transportation surreptitiously of, of men who quite often perhaps didn't even speak the language across mm. a hostile continent yeah, so one of the key things that MI9 taught was that if you've escaped, and yes, you can sort of hide in a bush looking over a farm, see if the men are away fighting and the women are probably going to be okay and they'll probably give you some bread. But you need to stay in hiding until someone from an escape line finds you. And there was a very good network, well, across, West, I'll talk about Western Europe, but across Western Europe, and locals knew if an airman had come down, you know, a mile or so away and, you know, he was thought to be hiding in the woods. And it was a job often of some very young women. And I interviewed Elsie Marshall for the book, who's now nearly 98. She was just 16 when she started to work for the escape line. Yeah, just 16. She was still doing his exams, still going to school. And one day she was told there's an airman hiding in the woods somewhere, wherever. And it was a few miles away and she went and brought him out carefully and she had to instruct him, you know, follow me, don't say a word, you know, do this, do that. And uh, yeah, incredible. So they were trained to help the airmen how not to give themselves away. But the other thing that's important, so you have this whole network of helpers and guides, but not all of them know each other. That's really important for penetration. But Elsie told me something else interesting, and I think that's true for most of the escape lines. She said, we didn't know about MI9. We just worked for an, the line, and, and we just knew that an organisation was helping us from London. And I just think that's incredible, because we just assume now that MI9's name is out there, that those that were working for it within Western Europe knew all about it. They didn't. They just knew that someone was sending them supplies and agents. And that level of trust, for me, I found that extraordinary. And that's not something you would necessarily find in the files, but that was from interviewing Elsie Marshall. That is just incredible. I mean, the idea that I, I used to be a teacher, so I know, I know what 16 year olds are like. <laughs> and the idea that you as a 16 year old would have the motivation to do yeah. that. Um, but also have the wherewithal to do that because it's such a dangerous job and requires you to be thinking constantly. I'm not saying that 16 year olds are thick because obviously they're not, but you've got to be thinking about so many different factors that might not ordinarily occur to a 16 year old. Yes. So to be thinking along those lines and to 
pull it off is just incredible. I mean what I discovered was the helpers and guides were of all ages some of them well men and women of course and some of them incredibly young like Elsie Marshall and Elsie and others of her age I mean you know they knew the risks it's not that they're necessarily thinking that they're immortal uh, they saw people shot in front of them for Elsie's Marshall's father didn't survive he was shot by the Nazis for helping the allies so they knew the risks and still they did it and I said to her because this is something I wanted to know you know I just can't I'm trying to understand why did you do it and you'll have read this in the book her a very powerful reply still defiant she looked at me with this she's got a very soft face but with this defiance and she said every day they were taking our food our fuel our coal we were cold in the winter the trains were leaving belgium for germany but she said most of all they took our jewish friends my jewish friends and she said we said out with the nazis and that the fight for democracy and freedom overrides everything else and she it's not an idealistic view it's not she's not being idealistic you could feel that this came from within and it is a spirit of resistance they were not going to just sit back and wait for the allied invasion which of course as we know uh, came through the normandy beaches they were not going to wait that long they were absolutely determined to help the allies and there were thousands of them where you know wherever there were operations not just in western europe but greece and the balkans and the far east everywhere there were people who really did risk their lives and some of them of course did lose their lives helping the allies that's so interesting and it kind of it, it does it escalates quite a lot it, at one point it ends up involving like aristocratic women and the vatican mm. as well doesn't it can you tell us some more about that one of the yeah great reveals again we've got a couple of great reveals <laughs> in the book well, I think we've got lots of great reveals but <laughs> yes definitely I think I think I've learned when doing the research never to be surprised by what you find and there are some foreign office files which have now been declassified and this is the role of the Vatican in helping MI9 in Italy and I was just thought it extraordinary because the Vatican's had a very bad name hasn't it it's it was neutral in the war at best uh, at worst you know history of potentially collaboration and of course the Nazi war criminals down the rat lines at the end of the war and getting scot-free but I discovered it was a bit more complicated than that and that the Vatican was sheltering some airmen and soldiers within the Vatican and they even sheltered a future head of MI9, Sam Derry, and he and Hugh O'Flaherty, who was a priest, saved over 4,000 allied airmen and soldiers in Italy uh, and when he was betrayed uh, they smuggled him into the Vatican to work. He was working just outside the walls of the Vatican. But yeah, yeah, when he was betrayed, they had to smuggle him into the Vatican. How do you do that? You dress him up as a cardinal. <laughs> <laughs> of course, Again, it makes perfect sense. Oh, absolutely. And uh, and the Pope, Pope Pius XII, what I discovered was that he definitely knew that this was going on. So I just think that perhaps there's a re-evaluation to be made about the Vatican and its role in the wartime. I don't think it was as simple as we're led to believe. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it is mad to think that this goes so high up. And it is also interesting to think about the human element of it. 
Mm. Like, why were people willing in the first place at all levels? Yes, I think it is precisely that. I think it's the the spirit of resistance was so deep and the fight for democracy, they'd lost their democracy. And in a way, I suppose, you know, everything was worth sacrificing for the fight to get that back. And if you think about, again, I'm just touching base with the Marshall family, they're just as one easy way into the story, but her father had helped the Allies in the First World War, not only smuggling intelligence out, but a sort of an escape network. And he was doing it again in the Second World War. And I can't help thinking that strong spirit of resistance, didn't the Germans learn anything? But <laughs> particularly about Belgium, that couldn't militarily hold back invading forces, but the spirit of resistance in the First World War was so great. Well, and of course in France, uh, that how could they, how could they defeat this nation ultimately? And I think that that is is partly at the root of it. So obviously, Helen, we're talking about the human side of it, and there's been films, not particularly on this topic, but humans will betray. And I'm wondering, did anyone actually ever betray MI9? I think you briefly touched upon some of it, or is there any clear details that we know of this happening? Yeah, very specifically. I mean, the three main lines that I look at is obviously the Comet line that I've mentioned from Belgium. There was the Pat line running out of Marseille. Both of those were compromised and with devastating effects. Harold Cole was one of them. In Holland, there was a chap called, well, he was known as King Kong, Christian Lindemans. Uh, they betray for whatever motive, for power, for money, um, women, whatever it was. And for me, I just think that's such a horrifying thing to do, that these ordinary people who are being human um, have been betrayed by the, by the terrible actions of betrayal. And I just think it's it's the worst possible thing, the act of betrayal. I just think it's horrendous. To betray your country is, in my view, horrendous. And that I, I never really understood in the MI9 story why those characters would have done it. I mean, we know it's for money and, and whatever meaning, but I just think it's the most terrible thing. It really is, especially so the, so the human cost that comes into it. Did, was there any inkling of when it was portrayed? You know, was the, the top British you know, intelligence know who it was at the time? Or was it something that was discovered afterwards? No, it was. There were hints in the case of Harold Cole. Um, you know, Jimmy Langley was a, a bit concerned already that something wasn't quite right. And... Carol Cole hadn't been where he was supposed to be at a particular point and so alert levels went out um, but ultimately MI9 didn't uh, bring him in well they had a price on his head at one point um, but ultimately yeah MI9 did not and this is the other thing which comes out in the book that I never understood Airy Neve wanted MI9 to set up new escape lines um, because number one, the old escape lines were not only getting fatigued, but were betrayed and they would start up again. But Neve thought, it, you know, it's only a matter of time before they're betrayed again. And therefore we should have new lines. And I never understood why MI9 never did that. So that was potentially one of the, well, it's one of the unanswered questions about this. There could be another book in there for you, Helen. <laughs> 
Do I really have to write about the betrayers? Oh my gosh. Well, you know what, Claude Dancy, remember who ran the both escape lines, the MI9 and the MI6 said, every man has his price and every woman is seducible. He's a bit of a dark character, isn't he? And he's the one that potentially may have turned Cole, Harold Cole a third time and compromise some of the lines to save MI6. We don't know for sure, but it's looking as though that might have been the case. So it's very dark in places. You've talked a bit about Colditz already, which obviously everybody kind of knows about through the popular TV series and, and films and so on. But can you enlighten us just a little bit about the real history of escapes from Colditz and the MI9 link specifically to all of that? Yeah, so called it specifically, there were allegedly over, well, as could be as many as over 500 attempted escapes. I think it's probably nearer 300 attempted escapes from Colditz. Only eight British officers got back from Colditz. Colditz being the, the camp for naughty boys, as it <laughs> became known, that if people had attempted escapes from other camps and been recaptured, as in the case of Airy Neve, could land themselves in Colditz. And Airy Neve was the first British officer to successfully escape and return from Colditz. But from my reading of the MI9 files and Colditz in particular, the immortalization of them in the films and the programs are remarkably accurate. Wow. I mean, that's, that's not necessarily something that you expect, is it, in terms of dramatization? Is it simply because the story is so fantastic that they don't need to embellish? Yeah, because I think in many ways, the facts in these cases are stranger than fiction. One of the things I did discover in the Colditz file, which I'm not sure if I ever come out publicly, but of course the Germans thought it was impenetrable, that you couldn't escape, partly because it was built on bedrock. Yeah, these guys, they're not going to tunnel out of this place. Well, never say never, <laughs> because they did tunnel through that rock. I mean, it's just incredible. And then you have stories of people, I think it was Pat Reed, wasn't it? Jumps down, I goodness knows how high, um, out of the outer inner perimeter and the outer perimeter, and then ends up walking through a gate and just out. I mean, for me, I think it is quite James Bond stuff, isn't it? You know, the prison could look out of a window at good as an how many feet high and think, yeah, we can escape from there. It's the impossible. And yet they do it. And I do think it is inspirational. It's believing that this is possible. And so that which underpins all those wonderful films and programmes, you actually find that same spirit in the official camp history of Colditz. And you've got the same stuff, you know, the, the drama, the... Um, activities that they're doing when they're trying they're digging an escape whilst the play is being performed in the theatre in Colditz all that it's in the MI9 files it's real it's all true folks it's all true that's so cool like I love that so much like the creativity that it must have taken to come up with it as well um, when you said about films also, this is a bit of a rogue reference, right? But when you said about tunnelling, all I could think of was the penguins in Madagascar that try and tunnel to Africa. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there's, the creators got that from MI9? Yeah, is what I want to know. <laughs> the penguins are secretly working for MI9, yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I mean, no, I just I love it. You had it here. <laughs> It's so <laughs> colourful and the stories are so bonkers. I mean, I really enjoyed read, writing this book, uh, reading it as well, but no, I really enjoyed writing the book 
because it is off the wall it's so bonkers and yet it's true and i think that's enduring fascination so what happened to mi9 after the war and what was its legacy the mi9 was disbanded at the end of the war sam derry i mentioned in connection with italy uh, he became the head of MI9 and then Churchill asked him after the war to found the territorial SAS and so that he did and yeah MI9 was disbanded but from what I understand during the Cold War there were some stay behind units and I discovered some declassified files for the Korean War but nothing beyond I mean I haven't worked on anything beyond that and in terms of its legacy, well, you can think of the physical legacy of rescuing over 35,000 allied personnel. It's an extraordinary number, but that's the official figure that's given in the MI9 history. But it's more than that. And this is something where I want our historians, would like our historians to look more at the MI9 files because there is tons and tons of intelligence in there. And I would like to see MI9 recognised as an intelligence gathering organisation as vital in World War II as the others. And yes, I do mean, you know, MI5, MI6, Bletchley Park, because until historians start looking at the sheer volume of this stuff and the nature of the intelligence in it, this has made a contribution to the outcome of the war you can see that and it might be different kinds of intelligence but you just think to yourself what if we didn't know all this information it's eyewitness stuff that's coming out from behind enemy lines whether it's mi9's agents or whether it's from airmen and soldiers that have made it back and so for me i think that's really important that mi9 is has its place proper place in world war ii history and i think at the moment it's forgotten i think you've just summarized my last question i just want to ask you very well is what would people what do you want people to take away about the story of mi9 and i think you've just hit the nail on the head but i did want to ask you one last thing um it's how much more is there to be discovered because one thing i found really interesting is that you know, there's what was it? Is it from like MI one to MI nineteen? So there's all of these sectors, and we, I, I mean, I like we said, I really only know about MI five, MI six, and now MI nine. But how much more depth of this intelligence history is there for us to really shape our understanding of the Second World War? I think there's tons of it, and I think if we're not careful, we're used to going to the same sources. And that's fine, because there are lots of new understandings coming out. But I think to look at the different branches of military intelligence, to look at their declassified files, and of course, not all of them will have declassified material, but there is sufficient stuff there, I think, for historians now to go into the detail. And I think it will shape and alter potentially and deepen our understanding of intelligence in the second world war and i hope you don't mind if i just throw in here but i do did argue in the prequel to mi9 i wrote the book the walls have ears and this was also a branch of mi9 and the intelligence there has now been recognized the discovery for example of the v1 v2 or at least the clarification for sure, led to the bombing of Penimunda in the middle of 43. And I argue without that, we could have lost the war. So I do think there's an awful lot we need to do. And that intelligence, there's so much more to do on the history of intelligence in World War II. 
this sounds very exciting because I feel like we're just at the beginning yeah we are it's we're fantastic. just at the beginning just when everyone thinks that history is being told I personally here comes Helen think, <laughs> no it's not here comes me it's here to tell them all. we need to most you know try and get historians really on board I think a lot of them are I'm not saying they're not on board but for example if someone's writing about the Dieppe raid or the battle of the Atlantic they've got to look at these MI9 intelligence files because the stuff in there that raises your eyebrows and you think oh my goodness we knew this and what's the implications of this so for me it's exciting I think we're just beginning well Helen I know that when we worked with you on Race to Victory this year that all of us in the production thought that your interview was just outstanding and really brought a different level to what we none of us even expected for the series. So hopefully more of that to come and we can really change this public perspective of intelligence history. So to wrap up then, we'll do something a bit fun um, just so our listeners get to know a bit about you. So first question, what got you into history? Oh, it's probably quite a common answer. I always loved history, but there was a history teacher who's still alive, actually, and we've met in recent years. He was inspirational for me. Yeah. So he brought history that. alive. Yes, I work in a school, so I'm sure the history teachers there will be pleased to hear that. <laughs> right. Next question. <laughs> and this comes from, well, this is inspired by the podcast, The Good, The Bad and The Rugby. I'm going to ask you a series of questions and I want you to just fire in with your immediate answer. <laughs> Are you ready? Yes, I think so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number one. What is your favourite historical figure of all time? My favourite historical figure? Although I'm not religious, I think Jesus. I'd love to know what really happened in the first century. Amazing. I love that. That's a cracking response. <laughs> Okay, now on the other side, who is your least favourite historical figure? My least favourite historical figure, yeah, it has to be Adolf Hitler. Okay, next one. If you went on a road trip, which three people from history would you want in your car? Oh, okay, so I would want uh, Ian Fleming. Nice, with all the gadgets. <laughs> <laughs> selection of gadgets fast cars and firepower um who else would i want in my car oh i'll just take ian fleming is that yeah. all right you wouldn't even need two other people yeah, exactly. just if be... he's bringing everything you've got the back seats filled up with everything else so really i think you've got each other descending into complete anarchy um, <laughs> okay and finally what has been the best moment of your career so far what's been the highlight the highlight of my career, actually, I was very lucky twice to get taken over to Normandy for the 70th and the 75th anniversaries of D-Day. And for me, that touched something very deep and it was um, very, very memorable. And it was quite hard to keep a dry eye, actually. But I was lucky to cover that with the BBC. And um, yeah, we owe so much and we've got to keep their memories alive amazing oh this has been so much fun today helen yeah. thank you so much for coming on and talking to us it's been brilliant yeah well thank you i hope i, I haven't been too mad but <laughs> we love mad here helen honestly and that was the wonderful helen fry talking to her about her recently released mi9 book which we highly recommend here 
Join us next week when we'll be joined by Peter Jones on his book, He Did His Bit. And in the meantime, don't forget to like, share, retweet, follow and get in touch with us through our Twitter account, Kaki Malaki. Until next time, I'm Zach White. I'm Phoebe Stiles. And I'm Olivia Smith. Thanks for listening. This is Kaki Malaki signing off. Thank <laughs> you.